I, first of all, I'll say this. This is welcome to Thanksgiving at Seven Hills Fellowship and any other major holiday <laughs> where everyone goes home to be with their family. Uh, but I will say this. I'm thankful that you guys are here. And uh, as I frequently say, um, your presence here is not an accident. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that um, God is sovereign. And so regardless of whatever your purpose for being here is this morning, um, it is my hope and prayer that the reason that God has brought you here this morning is that you might have an encounter with Him, a life-changing encounter with the living God. Uh, we're going to uh, actually move out of Ecclesiastes. Hope you guys enjoyed the series on Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're going to uh, look at a sermon or a, a passage of Scripture today, Psalm chapter 80. So if I can go ahead and get you to put that up. And if you have a Bible or if it's on your phone or whatever and you guys want to look at it, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but Psalm 80 was actually written by a guy named Asaph. So if you have looked through the Psalms before and you've seen that name, chances are you probably have. Well, Asaph um, was an interesting fellow. He was uh, a hymn writer for the temple. Part of what we know um, about Asaph is that he served at the very end of David's life, uh, but then he also served through Solomon's life. And we think that he even served into the divided kingdom. And so here was a guy who served as a hymn writer and this hymn singer in the temple for 40 plus years. And so if you think about sort of the history, think about the stories of David and think about particularly his kingship with Bathsheba. Think about Solomon and his wives and treaties and all these deals he made with foreign kingdoms. Think about when Solomon died and uh, the guy Jeroboam that then was supposed to take over the kingdom, he raised taxes even more than Solomon had raised taxes and then divided the kingdom. And so what followed was civil war. What followed was idolatry. What followed was all these people coming into Israel and Israel being ripped apart. And so when Asaph writes this uh, hymn, we can only assume as you look at the content of this uh, psalm today that part of what he was lamenting was the entire breakdown and the chaos of the sin of the Israelite people and the way that it was impacting them. And part of what he's asking for in Psalm 80 is that God would come and rescue this, uh, them from all of this chaos that their sin had produced. And so as I read Psalm 80, I want you to think about it probably in that context, that probably here's this hymn writer who's been writing for over 40 years, who's looking at the destruction of this uh, home and this kingdom that he loves. So jump in with me, if you will, Psalm chapter 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, 
the Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you so much um, for your word. We thank you, Father, that in the Psalms, that all of our human predicaments and uh, all of our human uh, situations um, are dealt with, Father. And here in this passage, um, clearly what we see is uh, that this godly man is lamenting the chaos that sin has produced in Israel, Father. And clearly what Asaph is doing is he's begging for you to come and to rescue your people. And so, Father, we come to you this morning and we ask the same. We ask that you would rescue us, um, that you would rescue us from the results and the implications of our sin. Father, we pray that you would rescue us from the chaos um, that uh, our rebellion has caused, Father. We pray that you would enable us, I pray that you would enable us this morning to trust in you as our good Father and in your Son, Jesus, as our Savior. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Probably when Levi, who I'm paying to tell this story, (laughs) it's probably when Levi was, I don't know, three or four, correct me if I'm wrong, Uh, but we had um, taken the family, Sam, May, Levi, Chris, and I, and we had uh, gone hiking up to the reservoir at Barrie. And so we parked there by the old mill, and we took the creek path, not the main trail. We took the creek path as it sort of followed this creek all the way up to the reservoir. It's probably a couple miles, I'm not sure. And uh, we got up to the reservoir, and we walked around the lake, and we walked on the dam, and we sort of looked at things and hung out. We probably brought um, a picnic lunch, who knows? We probably hung out. And uh, as we were walking around the lake, I had also brought my fishing pole. And so I was on the far side of the lake, and I was sort of casting in the lake a little bit. And uh, the kids had begin to get, begun to get bored a little bit. And so Sam and May said, hey, is it okay if we go ahead and go down to the car? And Krista said, yeah, I'll, you, you guys can come with me. And so uh, they went around the dam, and they went down the main trail, not the, the, uh, the creek trail. And they sort of took off. And right as they were walking across the dam... Uh, Levi, who had stayed with me, said, hey, is it okay if I go back with them? And again, he's three or four years old at this time. And I was like, yeah, sure, buddy. And so I figured I'd let him, you know, go ahead and go with them. And I'd fish for two or three more minutes. Then I'd, you know, jog down the hill after them and catch up with them. And so, you know, I saw Levi, you know, walk down the path and cross the dam. And I wasn't really paying attention because I was fishing. So I kept fishing, kept fishing. <clears throat> and uh, after a few minutes, I was like, yeah, that's probably good enough. And so I, you know, packed up my fishing pole and uh, went around the lake and uh, sort of you know, walked quickly, sort of jogged down the main path. And probably about halfway down to our car down the main path, I saw uh, Krista and May and Sam in the distance. And so, you know, I jogged up and uh, walked up to him. I was like, hey, where's Levi? And uh, Krista goes, well, he was with you. And I was like, well, when I was up there fishing, he asked if he could come down with you. And it struck me immediately as we were started having this conversation that Levi had not seen them turn right and go down the main path and instead assumed that they had gone towards the creek trail. And so I was like, oh, no. And by this point in time, it had been you know, probably 15 minutes since we had separated. And so I said, all right, Krista, you go to the car, <clears throat> take uh, May and Sam, and I'm going to run back up and I'm going to see if I can find Levi, assuming that he was going to go down the creek trail. Again, he's three or four at this point in time. And so... You know, I, in my incredibly fit uh, shape, ran back up the hill, <clears throat> made it up to the reservoir, and uh, began running towards where the creek trail is, sort of on the further side of the lake. And uh, as I was running, I was kind of yelling, Levi, Levi, and I was whistling for him with this awesome horse whistle that I have that I will not do. <clears throat> and, um, and as I was running, I ran across these two ladies, and I said, hey, 
have you seen a little three or four-year-old boy by himself out here? And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, uh, can you tell me which way he was going? They said he was going that way. And, um, and I said, well, did you talk to him at all? And they said, yeah, we asked him if he was lost. And he said, no. And uh, later when, by the way, the moral, you, you know the ending of the story because Levi's sitting right here. So anyway, <laughs> but later when we found Levi um, and had rescued him, we said, hey, why did you tell those women you weren't lost? He said, I wasn't lost. I knew exactly where I was. Anyway, so he, he was feeling fine. Anyway, so I was like, great. They pointed me in the right direction. So I ran across the lake and again, was whistling or whatever. And all of this felt like it took an eternity, but in reality, it probably took 10 minutes. And as I was running across the far side of the lake, and of course, I was envisioning all of these horrible things that could have happened. I envisioned that Levi could have wandered out in the woods by himself and gotten lost. I, I envisioned that he could have fallen in the lake because he was just this little bitty guy. I envisioned that some bad person could have abducted him. I had all these sort of things running through my brain. And as I ran around the far side of the lake past the creek trail, I looked sort of the other direction, and there I saw his little, you know, three or four-year-old self coming bobbing towards me, boop, 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 boop. And so I ran, and I picked him up and gave him a big hug and, you know, um, tried not to show that I was too fearful, but it was this great reunion because I was scared to death that, you know, maybe something horrible had happened to my son. We made our way down the creek trail, and about probably a quarter of the way down, I think we ran into Krista, who had dropped the kids off at the car and then run up the creek trail, and so she ran twice as far as I did. Um, So it's this horrifying story that has the happy ending of knowing that our son was fine, even though for a while he was lost and in danger because he had wandered away from us. Um, truthfully, um, it was really my fault for allowing him to sort of wander away from us. So the, the, the reason I showed that story and talk about it a little bit is to say this. We've, we've all wandered away from God, right? I mean, it, it, those of us who are believers have to admit that we've wandered away from God at times. And, and a lot of times we wander away from God unwittingly, right? We, you just kind of get busy, right? You're just busy doing stuff. You're busy with the family. You're busy with work. You're busy with something, and you, you, you kind of pick your head up, and maybe two weeks or three weeks or a month later, you realize that you've wandered far, far away from God. But, but it was really unwitting. Sometimes you wander away from God because you just get distracted, right? I mean, maybe you get distracted by the morning routine, or you get distracted by raising children, or you get distracted by the stuff. And again, you pick your head up a little bit down the road, and you realize that you've wandered away from God, right? Sometimes you uh, willingly wander away from God. Sometimes you look at him and you think, there's no way that I can trust you with my family. There's no way I can trust you with my life. There's no way I can trust you with my relationships. There's no way I can trust you with those things. So I'm gonna have to take care of myself. And so we walk away from God, right? In Israel, they trusted in false gods, right? They literally just sort of willingly turned away from God. And we said, we can't put our trust in you, so we're going to trust in these idols made of wood and stone and gold, right? They trusted in their wealth. They trusted in foreign alliance instead of trusting in God. They really sort of willingly turned away from God and said, we're going to trust in these things instead of trusting in you, and we do the same thing. A lot of times, we don't really trust God with our future. We trust our retirement account, right? We don't trust God with our physical well-being. We trust in working out or our diet, you know, or in terms of relational trust, we put our trust in our kids, or maybe we put our trust in our career or trust in, in friendships. And by the way, all those things are good things, right? I'm not intending to say that those aren't good things that God has given us. What I am saying is that when we trust in those things more than we trust in God, that those things become idols, right? And that when we trust in those things instead of trusting in God, that ultimately it leads to chaos 
and we have wandered away from God, we're lost, and we're in trouble. That's what Psalm 80 is about, right? It's ultimately about Asaph talking about the children of Israel wandering away from God, some unwittingly, some very willingly, but either way, they've picked their heads up, and all of a sudden they realize that God is far, far away and that they're in danger. And the message of this psalm is that God will come to rescue his people, that our shepherd will rescue us, his flock. That's really the first point that we see in this, um, this psalm, is that because God is our shepherd, he will save us. So let me read verses 1 and 2. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come and save us. And so four times in Psalm 80, the psalmist Asaph says, save us, save us, save us, right? And he refers to God as the shepherd of Israel. And so what shepherds do, one of the main things they do is they, they protect their sheep. We know that sheep are weak. We know that they're foolish. Any of you guys who've ever been in Sunday school ever have sort of heard about sheep. They're not particularly smart animals. And so they have a tendency to wander away. They have a tendency to get themselves into trouble. And we shouldn't be surprised that sheep need to be saved. That's why Jesus used that parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15, right? Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus is really talking about why he's come. And he's come in order to save those lost sheep. Here's what he says in chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, right? All the lost people were gathering around to hear Jesus because he had good news of rest for them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that is sort of the people who thought they were righteous, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you, and he's probably talking to the Pharisees at this point, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And so part of the message of Jesus for us today, part of the message of Psalm 80, is that God is a God who willingly desires to save us, right? And so how many of you this morning feel like maybe you know you've wandered away from God, right? How many of you know that that's you today? All right, again, we, we gave that list of reasons. Maybe it was something unwitting. For me, I can wander away from God by getting up in the morning and instead of having my quiet time for a few days, I can go, you know what, I'm just gonna read CNN and then I'm gonna just go to ESPN and then I'm gonna go to NFL.com and then I'm gonna go, and the next thing I know, I've run out of time to really spend time with God that morning and sometimes I'll do that for three or four or five or six days in a row and I pick my head up and I'm like, I haven't really spent that much time with God this week. It can be accidental. But again, like I said, it can be willful. It can be some of you who say, you know what, I don't trust in you, God. I can't trust you with my family. I can't trust in you with, with my husband or in these relationships or I can't trust in you with work. So I'm gonna do this myself. But again, either way, you know if you've wandered away from God and you know if you need to be saved this morning. And part of the point of Psalm 80 and part of the point of Luke chapter 15 is that God declares loud and clear, because I am your shepherd, I will come and save you. I'm more than willing to come and save you. It's the first thing we see in Psalm 80. The second thing we see in Psalm 80 is that because God is our shepherd, he will restore us. He'll restore his flock. So it's not just that he saves us, but he restores us. They're different. Listen to verses 3, 4, and 19. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. 
And so in the same way that the psalmist said, save us, save us, save us four times, here he says, restore us, restore us, restore us, but it's three times now. And so what Asaph wanted wasn't just salvation, he wanted restoration. He wanted Israel to be restored into a right relationship with their father, and he wanted the kingdom restored. Again, Jesus speaks to this very thing. He speaks to the fact that God doesn't just want to save us, he wants to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with him. This time we'll, we'll refer to the story of the prodigal son. Now, many of you guys know the story of the prodigal son. There's this father who represents God, and he has these two children. And one of the sons is the younger son, and the younger son comes to the father and basically says, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I want your stuff. I want my inheritance, but I don't want you. And so if you would, please give me your stuff, and I'm just going to leave, right? I'm going away. And we know that in the story, this younger son goes away, and he squanders all of his father's wealth on all sorts of different things. And there comes a point in time where he's experiencing the chaos that his rebellion and sin has gotten him. And he's so poor and he's run out of money that he's actually working for a Gentile. He's feeding pigs, right? And so there's just this image of him being so hungry and starving that he longs to eat the slop that he's feeding the pigs. And here's where we enter into the story. In verse 17, it says this, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. And so what the son is asking for isn't restoration. What the son is asking for is salvation, right? Just just save me, right? Just give me some food to eat. Just give me a roof over my head. I don't need to be your son anymore. I realize I've lost the right to that. And so if you'll just make me a servant, right? So here's what goes on to say in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You see, what the son is doing is he's giving his speech that he's prepared. He's saying, here's why you should save me, right? And here's under the conditions that, that maybe you can do that. And the father, like in a romantic movie, reaches out his finger and puts it on the son's lips and says, shh, right? And it says this. It says, but the father said to his servants, interrupting his son, like just, okay, all right turns to his servants and says, quick, bring the best robe. And and put it on him. And what he's saying is, quick, cover the shame of my son. You can imagine in the story that this boy has been, you know, feeding pigs and he's covered with mud and he's, you know, covered with pig feces and he's, you know, got filthy rags on by this point in time. And his father says, I don't want anybody to see you that way. And so he says to the servants, quick, bring this best robe and put it on my son. Cover his shame. And he says, put a ring on his finger, right? And this, this ring symbolizes authority, right? That, that 
my son is restored back into the position that he had before of authority in our home. And it says, and put sandals on his feet. And sandals, the implication of this would be that servants were barefoot, slaves were barefoot, but sons wore shoes. And so part of what Jesus is saying in this um, story of the prodigal son is he's saying he needs to be restored back to the status of a, of a son, right? You, you wanted me to come and save you, but I want to restore you back into the position, not of a servant, but of my son, right? And so what we see in this is that God is a God in Psalm 80 and in the story of the prodigal son who's not only willing to save us, but that he longs to restore us back into a right relationship with him and even into the status of being sons of the living God, right? And daughters of the living God. So again, How many of you feel like you need not just to be saved, but how many of you feel like you need to be restored, right? That you were made for more than what you are right now, right? That you've lost something that you had and you desire to be made whole. And part of what this communicates is that God is willing not just to save you, but to restore you. You may be worn out, beaten down, and barely making it, but God is not just in the business of salvation. He's also in the business of of restoration. That's the second thing that we see here in Psalm 80. The last thing that we see here in Psalm 80 is that because God is our shepherd, he not only will save us, he not only will restore us, but he'll smile upon us, right? Listen to verse 3. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. That phrase, let your face shine, is used four times in Psalm 80, but what it means, actually, the sort of, it's a figure of speech that means will you, that you'll smile upon us. And so Asaph wanted salvation. Of course he did. He wanted restoration for the children of Israel. Absolutely. But what he wanted more, what he expected more, was the loving smile of a father. And if it was just Asaph, then it, we might just think that's wishful thinking. But Jesus agreed with them. I intentionally cut off the last couple verses of the story of the prodigal son. Listen to verses 22 through 24. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate, right? God isn't just willing to save you. He's not just willing to restore you. He smiles upon you. He's, he's, he loves you. He's thrilled with you. He's thrilled when you return to him. And not only that, but the parable of the lost sheep. I also cut off the, the end of that. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Right? Jesus is making this radical point. And Psalm 80 is making this radical point that God's not just willing to save you, he's not just willing to restore you, but that he smiles upon you, right? I mean, that kind of feels, for somebody like me, that feels too good to be true. But I'm so thankful that Asaph said it, and I'm so thankful that Jesus said it, that our God is a heavenly father who smiles upon us. There's a man named Greg Boyle that has written a book called Tattoos of the Heart. Actually, Bob gave this to me six or seven months ago. It's a moving book about his work with gang members in Los Angeles. And in it, he claims that all of us have a touchstone or a controlling image of God. 
he explains that this touchstone image of God comes, his anyway, his touchstone image of God comes from his friend and spiritual mentor, a man uh, in ministry whose name is Bill Kane. And so I'm going to read a little, um, a little piece of the book that talks about this. And this is Bill Kane writing in the book. He says, years ago, uh, Bill Kane took a break from his own ministry to care for his father as he died of cancer. His father had become a frail man, dependent on Bill to do everything for him. Though he was physically not what he had been, and the disease was wasting him away, his mind remained alert and lively. In the role reversal common to adult children who care for their dying parents, Bill would put his father to bed and then read him to sleep, exactly as his father had done for him in childhood. Bill would read from some novel, and his father would lie there staring at his son, smiling. Bill was exhausted from the day's care and work and would plead with his dad, look, here's the idea. I read to you and you fall asleep. Bill's father would impishly apologize and dutifully close his eyes, but this wouldn't last long. Soon enough, Bill's father would pop one eye open and then smile at his son again. Bill would catch him and whine, now come on. The father would again oblige until he couldn't anymore, and the other eye would open to catch a glimpse of his son. This went on And on, and after his father's death, Bill said that this evening ritual was really a story of a father who just couldn't take his eyes off his kid. How much more so of God, he says. Boyle then goes on to add, he says, what's true of Jesus is true for us. That's what it means to be in Christ. Um, This morning, Joel talked about that. And so this voice breaks through the clouds and comes straight at us. You are my beloved in whom I'm wonderfully pleased. Man, is it possible that that can really be true, that God can smile upon us? Is it possible that God can really look at us and say that you are my daughter, you're my son in whom I'm wonderfully pleased? You know, God could have saved us with a furrowed brow. Like, he could have done that. Like, all right, come on. Right? God could have restored us with a blank stare. Right? Here's everything back. Now, I don't know about you, but I really long for more than that. I hope and I believe, not because of something internal within me, but rather because of Psalm 80 and rather because of these stories, that God smiles upon you and he smiles upon me in Jesus. Do you believe that that's true? That's the gospel. Do you believe that that's true? The ironic blessing, this uh, benediction that I give at the end of every sermon, sermon or the end of every service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. God commanded Aaron to say that over the children of Israel. That's the story of Jesus. It's the story of gospel that God smiles upon us in Jesus, right? But the question is, how do we know that this is true, that God is willing to save us? that he's willing to restore us, that he smiles upon us? And the answer is because he sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Even in Psalm 80, part of what we read this morning, he says this, let your hand rest upon the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Asaph didn't know know what he was writing, right? But we do. We know that our hope for restoration, that our hope for salvation, 
that our belief that we have a God who smiles upon us is precisely because of Jesus. All right, this morning, as you look around the room, you see tables. On my right, you have bread and wine, and on my left, you have bread and grape juice. But part of what the Lord's Supper represents are all of these things, right? It represents salvation. That's, that's what the story of uh, the Passover and Exodus was all about, that God passed over them, right? That he saved them uh, because of their trust in this perfect lamb. And not only that, but, but this meal today that we call the Lord's Supper is, uh, is also a picture of restoration. It's a picture of God inviting us to sit down for family dinner and saying, you're part of the family if you trust in my son Jesus alone for your salvation. Sit at the table, eat and drink, right? And it's obviously it's a picture of him loving us enough to send his only son to die for us. And so what I would ask that you do this morning is before you receive this bread and wine, I'd ask you to do two things. One, I'd ask that you ask yourself whether or not you trust in, uh, in Jesus alone for your salvation, because that's really the access to this table. It's the access to salvation and restoration, God smiling upon you. And if you aren't to that point of trusting in God alone and Christ alone for your salvation, then I would simply ask you sit back and you watch the people of God as they receive this grace and mercy offered in this meal. The other thing that I would ask you to do is I would ask you to listen to God, right? I would ask you to believe him. I would ask you to believe Jesus because Satan would have you believe, your internal voices would have you believe that the thing you have done, you just did too many times, there's no way God can forgive you for that. Or, or those internal voices or Satan would have you believe that that thing you did was, was just too big. Like, there's no way God can forgive you for that. But I would invite you to listen to Jesus when he says that his blood is more than enough, right? Those voices internally or the voice of Satan would say, well, you knew better. Like, maybe God could forgive you if you did it by accident, but you did that on purpose. And what I would have you hear this morning is the voice of God and the voice of Jesus saying, that the blood of the eternal Passover lamb is more than enough to cover all, over all of your sins, past, present, and future, big and small, intentional, unintentional, right? This meal, this body and blood of Christ is more than enough. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then I'm going to simply ask you, take your time, and you sit, and uh, you let the gospel really sink down through your head all the way into your heart. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Um, the message of Psalm 80. I thank you for uh, the message of um, the story of the prodigal son and of the lost sheep. Father, I thank you that your son Jesus um, came to communicate to us the truth that you are a God who is not only willing and able to save us, you are a God who is willing and able to restore us. And Father, maybe most unbelievably of all, you are a God who looks at us sinful, wayward, rebellious, foolish children, and you smile upon us. And so, Father, I pray that today, as we take this bread and wine, that we would remember that your son, Jesus, is, uh, is the proof and even the reason that we can stand before you forgiven, 
made righteous and beautiful in your sight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.